Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Amen. Well, hey, good morning again. Uh, it was so great to have our friend uh, Tony Barron here with us last week. What a great guy, but it's also uh, great to be uh, back in the pulpit uh, I don't know about you, but at the start of every new year, I, I find myself thinking about things in my life that I would like to see change. And I know we're already a couple months into the new year, but I'm still thinking about these things. And so pretty much every week I find myself saying, you know, next week I'm going to start eating well again. <laughs> you know, next week I'm going to start working out again. Well, it hasn't been working out so well, but ho- Hopefully, March holds more promise for me. (laughs) But I've also been thinking about change at a bigger level. And and this is what's been keeping me up at night. Because the vision that that God has given us as a church is to see our lives and even to see our cities transformed with the love of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that means individuals experiencing God's presence and power and mercy and being changed. That also means relationships and marriages and families being transformed. That means neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, even cities being transformed by God. Because Jesus taught us to pray that his kingdom would come where? Here, on earth, as it is in heaven. So we we long to see that, but here's the question. How do you see change happen in a city, in a a neighborhood, in, in a home, in a human life? How does that happen? What we see in the Bible is that true change, deep change, lasting change is always something that has God right at the center. But here's the problem we face in in our situation. It's that we live in a culture that is running away from God. And even more so, running away from the church. And let's be honest, too often that's for good reason, right? Because too often we haven't been what God has called us to be, to be salt and to be light. And so how do we see the change that we long to see in this sort of environment, which really is an environment in our culture of, of decline, of spiritual Decline, and, and one way of thinking about our kind of our, our cultural situation is is the image of hard soil. So uh, Jesus uses that kind of image in in, in, in a couple places. But I remember when we first planted this church uh, around uh, six years ago, and then about a year in, my wife and I found ourselves just really frustrated because God very clearly called us to plant this church, but we felt like we were seeing very little fruit. And we're like, God, like what is going on? Like we're doing what you told us to do. And as we prayed, we, uh, we prayed and, uh, and, and my wife, she felt like she had like, this picture come to mind of, of concrete representing the spiritual soil of our city and of the surrounding area. And she really felt like God was saying like, that's the condition of the soil here. We're like, oh, what well, makes sense that you wouldn't see a lot of fruit when that is the spiritual environment. But it's not just that. I mean, I could, I could illustrate this for, for hours. I'll just share a couple more illustrations. So recently I, I ran into a pastor friend. We ended up getting lunch and he's a great pastor here in North Orange County. I said, you know, what, what are you seeing? Like, what are you seeing kind of in our, in our environment spiritually? What's going on in your ministry? He said, I have to be honest. It is bleak out there. And he's like one of the best pastors in North Orange County. He said, it is bleak out there. He said, I just came from a meeting of pastors in my city. I won't tell you which city. And he said, every church represented there is experiencing significant significant decline or plateau at best. 
He said, my church is the only church that is growing and just by a little bit. And he said, we just ran uh, Alpha, which is kind of an outreach that, that we do, just an opportunity to provide a safe space for people to explore the, the basics of the Christian faith, just in an informal and, and relaxed environment. And he said, we ran Alpha recently. We had 30 people on our team, and only one person came to faith. He said, it is bleak out there. The soil, he said, of this area is just so hard. And, and, and just, I, I've seen this in conversations I've had with people or other friends in the church who've shared with me about conversations they've had where they talk to people and, and you know, they have a spiritual conversation. People are like, you know, but why, why, why do I need Jesus? Like, why would I need the church? Like, I've got my 12-step group or I've got my Pilates class or I've got my, you know, whatever. You know, and just people feel like, why, why do I need God? We just have this kind of this, this, uh, this apathy in the sense that just Jesus is irrelevant. And, and what I want us to really grasp is that in an environment like ours, that you can't advertise your way out of that. That, that you can't work your way out of that. That you can't uh, gimmick your way out of that with, if you get enough, you know, smoke machines or lasers or Easter bunnies parachuting out of airplanes. Like you just can't work your way out of that. You can't gimmick your way out of that, right? And so what, what I have become convinced of, I just have had this, this stirring within me, is that what we need in our day, in our place, in our time, more than anything else, is revival. Now, I don't know what comes to mind. Some of you maybe have heard uh, that word used in a weird kind of way. I don't mean anything weird. I just mean biblical stuff, like people being awakened to God, like a sleepy church waking up, like, like the scripture said, times of refreshing coming, like people outside the church actually being awakened that there is a God, that he's real, and they need him in their life. And, and really, that's what we really we, we need, I think, if, if we're going to experience what we long to see happen. And so the question is, how, how does that happen? Well, I want to look today at, at a powerful story, the story of a guy named Gideon. And we read part of it a moment ago. And if you have a Bible with you or kind of a, you know, a, an iPad or whatever, you can turn to the book of Judges chapter 6. And by the way, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible is one book comprised of 66 separate books. And so Judges is the seventh. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So the seventh book in, and that's where we're going to be today. And I want to just sort of walk through this story, and we'll just kind of make some application as we go along. Now, like in our context, the people of Israel here, they are experiencing decline, deep decline, spiritual decline, moral decline. But there is a moment when the tide turns and God begins to act decisively. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to start all the way back in chapter 6, verse 1. You can put, put this verse up. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And so this is a time of decline. It's leading to consequences, like real consequences in their lives. And actually, the book of Judges is basically the story of a series of cycles of decline and revival, decline and revival among the people of Israel. And and of course, where we pick up the story here, they're in a state of decline. Verse 2. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So not only are they experiencing spiritual decline, they're actually living in defeat. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. 
they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So sometimes, as we see here, we don't totally wake up spiritually until we kind of come to the end of our rope, and that's what's happening here. Now, actually, the Israelites aren't actually really turning to God and really repenting at this point, but they did at least cry out to him for help. And then we read in verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, you God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So, so here's, here's the backstory. In the Old Testament, you may know this, uh, the people of Israel were enslaved at one point by the Egyptians. Eventually, God frees them, and he tells them he's going to now lead them into the promised land, which he had promised to their ancestors. And, and in this promised land is wrapped up the, the promise of abundance and, and provision and prosperity. And so now they're en route to the promised land, and they travel through the wilderness, but uh, they disobey, they rebel against God. So God says, basically, this generation's not going into the promised land. So they're in the wilderness for another 40 years. Eventually that generation passes and then emerges a generation who God says, okay, now is the time and you're going in uh, to the promised land. And in the book of Joshua, which is the book that comes just before Judges, it's the story of Joshua leading the people and conquering the land. And so the people of Israel, they settle into the promised land, but there was a condition on the promise of this promised land. The condition of the promised land was if, this will be yours if you obey. You will have this prosperity and, and abundance and, and wealth if you obey me fully and keep my covenant through these commands. And recently I read the book of Joshua and that's kind of reiterated and I just, it was just so clear to me. It just kind of jumped off the page that, that their success, that their victory was actually contingent upon their obedience to God. And you see, sometimes we want the benefits of God without the relationship with God. Sometimes we want the blessings of God without actually walking in obedience. That's what's going on here. God reminds him, like, look, that's not how it works. And what happened was after Joshua and his leaders passed away, the Israelites grew fickle and they they started worshiping other gods. And so by the time we get to Judges chapter six, they've just totally forgotten about God and the covenant they have with them. And so God sends them a prophet, rather, to to call them on it. And, And now he is a God of grace and mercy, but he's also a God of truth. And so because he loves them, he actually sends them this prophet to tell them the truth. And so he's telling them, look, because you've walked away from me, that's what's opened you up to all these problems with the Midianites. And so what we have here is a situation in in which the people uh, of God are living in the promised land without the promises of God, without experiencing that. They've settled into the promised land, yet they're impoverished, uh, they're suffering, they're surviving rather than thriving in the promised land. You know, we read they're building, you know, shelters and they're hiding out in caves and, you know, not able to produce any crops. 
uh, because every time they try to plant and harvest, the Midianites would come and just, you know, just lay waste to the place. And, and, and so for seven years, they're being oppressed by their enemies in the promised land. And what's very clear is that they've, dis- they've developed sort of this survival mentality. They've kind of settled into defeat. They're, they're living in despair. And so God sends them the prophet to say, hey guys, you missed it. You were supposed to obey me, but you're worshiping these false gods. Now, what's amazing is that as this story continues, God begins to do something. Now, no, it's not because they deserve it. They, they, they've forsaken God, so they don't deserve this, but out of God, out of his grace and his mercy and his compassion, God begins to do something. He begins to act, and what we read in this next passage is, is something I really believe the Lord wants us to really listen to today, and, and we read here about a man named Gideon, and, and God hears the cry of a nation, note this, he hears the cry of a nation, and he goes to an individual. Judges 6, verse 11, let's read this again. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abisrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, if you understand the context, this is a bit comedic, right? This is, this is a bit ironic. Uh, you know, the, the angel uh, of the Lord, so he shows up to deliver God's answer to the cry of the Israelites. And the answer is really to call this humble guy named Gideon. And so what is Gideon doing here? Well, it says he's, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, you have to understand that is a very strange thing to do, to thresh wheat in a wine press. And here's, here's a wonderful image. So that's kind of back in the day how they would thresh wheat. They would throw it up in the air. And the idea was that the wind would blow and separate the chaff and blow it away. And then the kernel would fall to the ground. But, but Gideon, of course, he's afraid of the Midianites. And so rather than doing this above ground where you're not going to have good wind, he's, he's in a wine press, which in, in, in an ancient wine press was basically like a pit dug into like these, these rocks, right? And so he's down here. He's hiding from the Midianites because he doesn't want to be seen. And that's the setting when we're told that the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. No, this is a bit comedic, right? I mean, it's a bit ironic because here's Gideon. He's hiding out in this pit. Uh, and, and yet the, the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, one way to read this is it's almost as though like the angels are kind of clowning him, like, hey there, mighty warrior, you know? <laughs> and that's kind of one way to read. I don't think that's actually, I mean, there's definitely irony here for sure. Uh, but I, I don't think that's actually what's going on. I don't think so much that he's mocking him. Rather, here's what I think. He's calling him into his destiny. He's calling him into his definite. You see, humans, we look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God knows Gideon inside out, and he looks at him not based on his present reality, thank God, but based on his destiny, and he summons him to it. Now, in the moment, I don't know what sort of name or title that, that Gideon would have used for himself. I have no idea. Maybe it would have been coward, but God has another name for him, mighty Warrior, And I just want to pause for a moment and, and just to point out that sometimes we carry around names that maybe others have put on us, maybe, maybe that we've put on ourselves, but God might have a different name for you. So you might just want to ask him this week, what is, what is your name for me? Because so often we're carrying something that isn't in line with his destiny for our lives. Now, it is true that in this moment, Gideon is afraid, but by the end of this story, we see that he will become a mighty warrior. And so God calls him into that. Now let's look at his response, verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, 
But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, I actually love that response. And the reason I love it is because it's honest. He is so honest. He's a little confused, but he's totally honest with himself, with God. And I I just have to say that you will never grow very far in your relationship with God unless you learn to be honest with yourself, with him, like how you're really feeling, what you're really thinking, even about him. You see, Gideon is just so honest. I love that. This is a model for us. And so Gideon is basically saying, look, if God is with us, why why are we on the run? Why why are we oppressed by the enemy? I mean, I've heard the stories of old, what God did and delivering our people from Egypt, but why isn't he doing that now? Again, the honesty, you have to love it. Now, his perspective is a bit skewed. He's overlooking a couple of things. First of all, he's overlooking the fact that the reason they're in this mess is because of their own rebellion. Right. Sometimes we kind of have these blind spots, right? He's got, so he's got this big blind spot right now. God's going to fill that out. But the second thing he's overlooking is that God actually has been at work. And sometimes we can forget so quickly what God's done. That's one of the reasons why I like to keep a journal. It helps me remember. Oh yeah. But he's forgotten because just not that long ago, God used people like Deborah to bring deliverance. And so he's forgotten about all that. And, and, and so sometimes again, we can be forgetful, but again, what I love He's so honest. And another thing I love is that he feels this tension. He feels this tension. He remembers at least some things about what God's done in the past. He's saying, I remember that, and I've seen you do that, but why aren't you doing it here? So I, I, I think it's so healthy that he feels that tension between the reality of, of Scripture and what God's done in the past and his present reality. That is, that is so, so important. But there are two ways you can go with that. One way is to let that tension lead you to prayer, to seeking, to contending, Another way you can go is to shut down, to, to despair, to get cynical. And, and that's really where Gideon is right now, actually, at this point. Now, um, if I'm honest, just to just kind of bring this home for a minute, I, just, I, I fear that, that far too often in the American church, we can settle for defeat, like the people of Israel in this setting. And I'll just maybe illustrate this a few different ways, but this is, this is fascinating um, I, I came across some very recent research from Barna that Barna and the Alpha organization did just recently, and they found that uh, almost half of practicing, not nominal, practicing millennial Christians believe it's wrong to share your faith. Wow. Wow. If, if we lose this idea that we actually have good news, not just true news, but good news to offer the world, we, we are living in defeat. That's just one example. That was just, wow. Here's another example of feet. Here, when, when we have no expectation that God could actually show up and do something, we have no expectation. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and think, gosh, I guess this is just the way it is. When, when that's our reality, we are living in defeat. Because I, I see, like Gideon, I see these things in scripture. I'm like, God, I want to see that. Like now, one of my favorite verses from Habakkuk 3 verse 2, it says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So when we have no expectation that God could actually do that, we, I believe we are living in defeat. Just a couple other examples. When our approach to discipleship focuses only on helping people survive culture rather than thrive in culture and maybe even change it. 
when we only teach people how to avoid, you know, you can't read, you can't listen to this kind of music. Uh, you can't read this kind of book. That's the only thing we teach, but we are, we are living in defeat because we are called to be change agents for the kingdom of God. Maybe another example, when we settle for entertaining people rather than making disciples, we are living in defeat. I could go on and on. One last example, but when, when our lives, when we allow our lives to settle just for lives that look like, just, just indistinguishable from our secular counterparts, that we are living in defeat. And so that's the situation. Just to give you, I want to just help us see how this could work out in our lives. But the, the, the people of Israel at this point in time, they're living in, in defeat. And so what we're talking about here isn't just a historical thing issue. Rather, it's something that we can wrestle with as well. So God, he hears the cry of a nation and he goes to Gideon. And I believe that in our time, God is looking for Gideons. Now, you might wonder, what does Gideon bring to the table in all this? I mean, like, why would God go to Gideon? Um, Well, after Gideon basically says, you know, where's God? It says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Again, he's feeling like, he's feeling afraid. He's feeling insecure. And, and, And the Lord says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? You know, where's God? go save him. Wow. Now here's what's fascinating. God doesn't save it first. Uh, you're going to do the, the seven-year discipleship training school. He doesn't save it first. You, you are going to enroll in seminary and or whatever. Uh, th- there's nothing. Just go in the strength you have. It, it, it's shocking. But now, now what is the strength he has? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 15. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Now, is this insecurity? Is this humility? I think probably both. I think at the very least, there's humility here. And, and that's one thing that Gideon has going for him. He, he, he actually understands his weakness. Uh, sometimes we, we, we don't see that, but he, he knows his need, that he can't pull this off on his own. On his own. And, and God loves to use those kind of people. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. God loves to use people who know their weakness and their need for God. So God is basically saying to Gideon, go in your weakness, and as you go, you will discover my strength. How? Because verse 16, I will be with you. That is the promise. And and I I think one application of this is that if we're waiting until we feel strong enough or knowledgeable enough or ready enough to do what God's called us to do, we will be waiting a long time. Because like Gideon, we can always make excuses, right? We can always make excuses. Go in the strength you have. And, and this promise that is just not just forgetting because in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to go, right? He gives us a mission. And also he says, what? I will be with you always. That's the difference maker right there. God's presence with us. Now in verse 17, it says, Gideon replied, now if, if I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Now he's literally talking to the angel of the Lord asking for a sign. This is, this is kind of funny, right? It's like he's dialoguing. Uh, it's like, imagine like you're doing dishes one night and you hear like the audible voice of God. And you're like, and you're talking, you're having a conversation. Wait a second, prove to me it's you. I mean, it just, I mean, who else is he talking to? Give me a sign, you know? And, and that's what we do sometimes that we want a sign and we, it, we feel like we need a sign that he's with us. But actually, Gideon's already got a sign. Earlier in scripture, God says that his presence is his sign. So, so we shouldn't have to wait for circumstances to change before we can trust God and believe him. Rather, we should trust his presence as we go into those circumstances, right? And that can be hard, but that, that is the call. So here's God's strategy. He goes to Gideon, who's weak, uh, and, and he's humble, but he's afraid, 
and he's probably insecure too, but what did Gideon have in addition to that? What makes Gideon a mighty warrior is not his strength. It's not his past achievements. It's simply this. And this is what I want to invite us into. It's, it's obedience. The condition of the promised land was built on one thing. If you obey. And, and Gideon becomes a man who simply hears God's voice in spite of all his little foibles. He, he becomes a man who simply hears God, God's voice and obeys. Now, as the story goes on, uh, uh, God does give Gideon a sign. Then he finally re- realizes, oh my goodness, it's God. And he actually kind of freaks out, but God's like, no, peace be with you. Like, no, it's okay. <laughs> Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. And, and so this mighty war is willing to begin this process. And, and here's what I, I want us to see, that the renewal of Israel, just think about this, the renewal of Israel begins with the personal renewal of Gideon. That the renewal of a nation begins with one guy having a personal encounter with God and then reorganizing his life around him in light of that. That's how this begins. So, so let's see what, what happens with the rest of the story. So uh, the nation begins to change when this one person begins to experience God and reorganize his life around him. So Judges 6, verse 25, it says this, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Verse 26, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So renewal begins to take place in Gideon's life, and he begins to hear God's voice and reorder his life. And then he hears the voice of God, and he begins to reorder his household. It moves from a personal encounter with God, and then it moves to getting rid of idols in your house. And as I, as I prayed about this message, I just felt like I heard the Lord say, send revival, start with me. That like, that is the call, that that is the prayer uh, of this. Send, Lord, send revival, start with me. That is what we see in this passage. That's how it begins. It starts with us tilling the hardened soil of our own hearts, and then it spreads from there. And so I believe that if we want to see change in, in, in a city, in a region, in a nation, it all starts right here. Start with yourself. Move to your household. So how does God bring revival? How does he bring change? He starts with one person. It just takes, as we see, it just takes one humble person submitted to God, willing to step out in faith, and the tide can change. And that which seemed impossible before all of a sudden becomes possible. Edwin uh, Friedman, who's the father of family system theory, says this, I came across a couple of great quotes. It takes one person to change a system or environment one person to become responsible for change. They can become a non-reactive, non-anxious presence and a change agent for that system. In his book, A Failure of Nerve, he says, whether it be a family or government or the army services, this is true across the board. It takes one person. He goes on to say that to change a system, one uh, does not need to focus on the entire system, but actually one person who is willing to become a non-anxious presence. Stop the blaming uh, the system for its problems and becomes a responsible and willing agent of change. Can act like an antibody and bring change to the entire system, whether it be families, cities, or governments. People who become a non-reactive, non-anxious pr- agent, 
agents of change bring healing. And I also uh, came across a classic text from uh, uh, 1832 called Lectures on Revivals of Religion by a man named William Sprague, who was a pastor, a Christian leader. He was an author. And one of the things he notes in his study of, of revival throughout Christian history is that so often one of the key things that God uses is renewed individuals. It's, like, it's almost like as God begins to renew an individual person's life, it's like becomes infectious. Their sense of joy, the sense of transformation in their lives, the sense of God's presence with them begins to spread to others just organically. But back to the story we see with Gideon is rather than focusing on the problems out there, he starts with his own household. And so the call for us is, is to do what we can to reorder our own lives, our own households, to get rid of idols. And, and now if there's one thing, one thing that people in the Old Testament struggled with that we don't, it is the temptation to create a, an idol out of gold or wood or something and to worship that, right? That's like probably the one thing in the Old Testament that we don't struggle with uh, today. But here's what I want you to think about, that although we don't struggle with idols in that sense, we still have idols, right? They, they just look different. So, th- so think about this. So maybe I was thinking about this the other day. So maybe when you, you know, get on your, your favorite e-commerce site and you just kind of start scrolling, 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 and all of a sudden your eyes kind of glaze over and you kind of almost go in this trance-like state. And, you know, you're trying to feel like some sort of void in your heart and maybe it's Amazon Prime. I don't know what your thing is. Uh, maybe that's my deal. But, um, you know, it, you know just think, of, think of that. I'm not saying always, but sometimes it's like that can become almost like an act of devotion to mammon right? Or think of this, if you sit down to look at pornography, that is like an act of worship of a false god. That's how we need to think about this. Those are idols in our lives. They might look different, but we still have idols in our lives. And God would say, tear that down, tear that down, tear that down. That's what makes space for him to move in our lives and in our communities. So Gideon eliminates the idols in his household. He restructures his life. He stops blaming Israel for the problems and he takes responsibility for his life before God. Now the people in Gideon's town begin to wonder because they're actually, they've been worshiping these idols. Like, hey, who, who tore down our idols? And they actually get really upset and they want to kill him. Thankfully, uh, Gideon's dad kind of bails him out or we don't have time to get into all the details. Uh, let's skip down to uh, verse 33 of Judges 6. Uh, it says, now all the Midianites and Malachites and other Eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. So uh, the people of Israel, they're about to be bombarded by these opposing forces. Uh, but Gideon, he gets his life in order. He gets his household in order. And then in verse 34, we read, then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Israelites to follow him. Verse 35 He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms. So Gideon, this kind of little insecure, scared guy, he orders his life. He he does what God calls him to do. And in the moment when it looks like the odds are overwhelmingly against him, the spirit of God comes upon him. And, And you see, he's ready for the spirit's anointing in that moment. He's ready for a fresh move of God. And and so here's just by way of application, the question for us to think about. If God were to pour out his spirit upon us in power, would we be ready? Like, what, could we even handle that? Like, would we even be prepared to, like, operate in that sort of environment? Uh, that's a question for us, that, that God wants us to be ready so that he can do that. He wants us to be ready. So here's my commitment. I'm, I'm going to prepare myself. Will you prepare, you prepare yourself? Will you prepare your household? That's the call. 
I'm just going to kind of summarize the rest of this story for the sake of time and encourage you to read chapter 7 on, on your own. So, so Gideon, he blows the trumpet, summoning people to, to join with him. They're outnumbered. They can't even count the army that's against them. They're overwhelmed. Now 30,000 men show up to join Gideon in this battle. 30,000 men. Uh, you know, uh, and the guy who was once afraid, you know, he's now anointed by the Spirit. He blows a trumpet. 30,000 people show up. That's pretty good, right? I mean, that's, that's, that, that is a mighty warrior. And they get ready to go to the valley. 30,000 men. They're against uh, this really big number. But God's like, no, you got too many people. That, that, that's not going to work. Too many people. And, and, and I'm not going to share my glory with, with human beings. So I, I want you to be dependent on me in this. So, so 30,000, he says, okay, I want you to um, whittle that down. So if anyone's afraid, you can leave. And so, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, 20,000 men leave. They're down to 10,000 men from 30,000 to 10. And, and God's like, no, that's still too many. And so he's like, you know, go and, you know, lead them to the water. And anyone who, who drinks the water kind of laps it up like, okay, they're to go home. And so they, through all these different things, they eventually whittle it down to 300 people, to 300 people. Uh, and it's just unbelievable. Only 300 people, yet they win against insurmountable odds. It's amazing. And I'm almost done here, so I'm gonna invite the, the band to come back up. But in closing, here, here's just, here's what I believe. It's just that our culture, what our culture needs is, is Gideons. And I believe that what God is looking for is Gideons, people who are humble, people who are dependent, who are simply ready to do whatever he asks and respond and when those people are in place, I believe that we will see a move of God. And that's my prayer. And so I'll just leave you with this prayer that send revival, start with me. May that be our prayer. Lord, send revival, would you start with me in my life? Let's pray together. So Lord, we, um, <laughs> we thank you that you're a God who hears the cry of a people and that you respond. And so Lord, we do pray for more of you for a, a great move of your spirit in our midst, God. But would you prepare us? Send revival, Lord, start with us. Would you show each of us what that looks like? In Jesus' name.